Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, uh, there is a question on the quiz. What is the deep brain structure most associated with emotions? The limbic system, right? Why is that? Yeah. So what structures are involved in um, emotional processing in the limbic system? Hypothalamus, what else? The amygdala, very much. Fear and rage, uh, mostly, right? I was just advancing the slides because we're, uh, we're starting out after hunger, right? We finished with hunger last time, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that answers your question. Um, did you take 201A? Yeah, okay. Because um, that would have been covered in the neuroscience chapter of 201A. Um, and hopefully in, in this chapter too, but I haven't looked at where it's covered in the chapter. I didn't see where it's like directly said this. You know, I mean, it did say the amygdala, mm -hmm. amygdala a lot in there, but it didn't say. So it assumes you've read chapter three already. Ooh, ow. Okay. Right, right, right. Okay. Well, hopefully that won't be on the exam. I don't know if it is. It's too late now. Yeah, yeah, right. Remember the limbic system. Yeah, if you, if there's, you know, that's one of the things that I drill into my students when we study neuroscience is emotions, limbic system. Emotions, limbic system. Yep. Okay, so motivations. Uh, we finished off with hunger last time. We didn't get a chance to talk about sex. I said we'd do that this time. And just like with hunger, we'll talk about um, physiological causes as well as uh, psychological causes. So physiology. Um, remember our buddy hormones. Hormones are released uh, by uh, what part of, parts of your brain, you remember? The pituitary gland is one uh, main source of hormones, especially reproductive hormones. And the pituitary gland is also called the what gland? Master. The master gland for that reason, that it, um, it really does direct a lot of uh, um, glandular functions, a lot of um, reproductive and regulatory functions. The hypothalamus is also associated with hormone production and with reproduction. But it's and partly because it's directly connected to the pituitary gland. Um, now, the interesting thing about hormones is that different uh, species of mammals respond at different rates to hormones in terms of reproductive behavior. For example, lower mammals, <laughs> as humans like to consider ourselves higher mammals, lower mammals, rats, for example, um, have a very high level of response to hormones in terms of reproductive behaviors. They're very dependent on hormones to initiate reproductive behaviors, for example. Um, most animals will not be receptive, uh, most female animals will not be receptive to um, sexual intercourse until they're in estrus, as it's called, um, at their period, during their period of fertility, or sometimes called 
in heat. Um, so rats have a very high response to hormones. Dogs have a high uh, hormone basis for reproductive behaviors, but it's less so than rats, for example. Um, Non-human primates show um, even less response, even less responsibility for hormones in initiating reproductive behavior than dogs do, and humans um, even less than non-human primates. So humans um, respond reproductively and are capable of engaging in reproductive behavior, sex, sexual intercourse, um, during the entire month as opposed to most animals where they have a period of fertility and that's the period that they'll engage in reproductive behaviors. Um, there are other mammals um, that engage in sexual behavior outside of um, uh, reproductive, uh, optimal reproductive periods, but they're relatively limited in number. Bonobos, I think, or maybe dolphins, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're walking down the street and some dog comes up to you and gets going on your leg and you're like, dude, what is up with that? Um, yeah, the, that's um, mostly male dogs. Um, yeah, yeah. And, um, but the females obviously won't be um, receptive until, uh, until that period, yeah. Right. They really like you, yeah. <laughs> she really likes you. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and so some, uh, is she spayed by any chance? Uh, no, but she wasn't before. I don't know if she's doing it now. It's just huh. Okay. Yeah, there may be a relationship with spay and neutering. I'm not sure, too. Yeah. But, yeah, and, you know, engaging in that behavior is a long way from intercourse with a, with a male dog, too, so. Um, for women, uh, estrogen is what's going to be driving these reproductive cycles. And so it's at its highest level when women are ovulating. Um, and in dogs, for example, we would call that that they are in heat. Um, and estrogen goes in these periodic cycles. For humans, it's a generally a 28-day cycle of estrogen production. It'll peak every 28 days. And as I said, it's going to be controlled mostly by the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland, these very important um, glands for the production and distribution in your bloodstream of reproductive hormones like estrogen. And for men, of course, the reproductive hormone, testosterone, yes. Um, produced primarily in men in the testes, uh, the testicles, and the adrenal glands, which sit up on top of your kidneys. The adrenal glands produce a relatively small amount of testosterone, though. Um, so a castrated male, for example, will be producing um, a very small amount of testosterone. And for men who may have, um, by necessity, for example, I'm familiar with this because I have had testicular cancer, I'm a survivor, um, for men who wind up in the unfortunate case of having a tumor in both testicles, um, uh, usually it's a tumor in one testicle, then that testicle is removed. And then uh, if there's a secondary tumor in the other testicle, then they'll have to have the second testicle removed. 
And um, so essentially, virtually all testosterone production is shut down. So they'll have to have um, testosterone replacement therapy, for example. Similarly with women, if they have to have a hysterectomy because of a health problem um, and have the ovaries removed, they'll usually have um, hormone replacement therapy too for estrogen. Um, testosterone production through over the, uh, over the month is more stable, but it has usually daily fluctuations. It'll peak generally in the morning time, and, um, uh, but uh, over the period of a month, it doesn't show that much uh, fluctuation. And um, it's highly associated with aggression. So higher testosterone levels in both men and women are um, associated with aggressive behavior. So fighting and sex, you know, um, intimately connected behaviors, right? Um, probably not by accident, probably uh, adaptive. These are probably both very adaptive behaviors for survival, um, very primal kinds of behaviors. And um, questions on this stuff? Yeah. Okay, uh, the question is, is there a relationship between hormones and why women experience what's known as, you're probably referring to menstrual synchrony? Um, there's a phenomenon in women known as menstrual synchrony. And menstrual synchrony occurs typically when women live in close proximity to each other. So it'll happen, for example, in college dorms. If you live in an all-female uh, floor, for example, or in a dorm that's all women, um, what will happen is the women who are living in proximity to each other, will their menstrual cycles will begin to shorten and lengthen, and they'll eventually start lining up together, and they'll stay like that for the duration of all these women are uh, in close proximity. This will also happen if um, women work together all day long, and the same group of women work in close proximity to each other eight hours a day. Um, and uh, yet yeah, the answer is yes, there is a relationship with hormones. The relationship is unclear though, um, because it's not like you walk up to the person you're living with and check their estrogen level every day. Say, oh, you're a little lower than me, so I'm gonna increase mine. Um, so one of the hypotheses is um, that pheromones, which are um, a chemical signal um, released by animals, um, as a reproductive readiness signal for one thing. So as you approach your peak of fertility, you'll be releasing more uh, pheromones. Uh, incidentally, they're also released by animals that are in danger or um, uh, want to alert other animals to something dangerous in their environment. Um, so, uh, but anyway, one of the hypotheses is that um, women detect the levels of pheromones in the women around them and begin to um, line up their menstrual cycles. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, so yeah. Um, so you can gang up on guys um, and say, why are you being mean to me? All I do is love you all the time. Um, okay, no, that's my own issue, sorry. Uh, Let's see, what was I going to say? Oh, so um, 
while we're on the topic, do you have, and my 201 students have already heard this spiel, I think, um, when we talked about sensation. Um, so don't jump in right away if you were there already for the talk. Do you have any ideas about why this happens? This will happen, for example, not only in humans, but in other animals. Why would it be advantageous to have all of the females at um, ovulating at the same time and reproductively ready at the same time? Okay, so this hypothesis is that um, if you've got a, f a group of um, uh, animals, say a pack of dogs or, or lion pack, and there's one dominant male, that that, um, that that male has access to all of these females at the same time. Yeah, good, good hypothesis. What else? Okay, so one of the things you want to think about when you're thinking about evolutionarily um, adaptive behaviors is the idea is to ensure the survival of the children and get the children to reproductive age so that they can reproduce and continue your genes, right? Um, and so this hypothesis is uh, if the animals come into heat at the same time and are impregnated at the same time, then they will give birth at the same time. And so you'll have a lot of um, a lot of puppies and mothers, uh, you know, female dogs and male dogs, that are able to take care of the puppies all at the same time, so that you don't have um, you know one mother who's busy with puppies and the other ones are ranging around. All of the animals can be in relatively close proximity. They'll have dens near each other, and so there's an there may be an evolutionarily adaptive advantage to caring for multiple children by multiple females at the same time. And, you know, humans are social animals and, um, you know, we, the best evidence we have is that we were, um, in our hominid past, um, social animals that had something like packs and nomadic kind of hunter-gatherer um, existences. So, yeah. So probably it's a sur it's a survival related related thing, yep. But perhaps hazardous to any males who. Does it exist in uh, frogs or fish? I don't. That's a good question. Um, I suspect not, um, because mostly because they aren't the, they don't have the same kind of social networks as uh, mammals do. And I don't, I assume that they don't have the same hormonal and pheromone kind of production systems that mammals do, but I don't know that for sure. Yeah. They do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and I don't know what the, you know, what the relationship is there. Yeah. I don't know how that works. That's a good question, though. Um, now, the psychology of sex. 
First of all, um, do we all engage in sexual behaviors in essentially the same way? Yeah. Physically and psychologically. Do we? It's debatable. So, uh, so some of us engage in, for example, um, what is referred to in sexology as penis in vagina um, intercourse. Some of us will engage in um, oral intercourse. Some of us will engage in anal intercourse. Some of us will engage in mutual masturbation behaviors. There's a huge variety of um, sexual behaviors in humans. But the thing is that we really didn't know much about this. The only reason that we know anything about this is because of this guy here, Alfred uh, Kinsey, who was a zoologist. And his students would come to him and say, gee, you know, um, we're going to get married and um, we're a little anxious about what we're supposed to do on our wedding night. And he didn't know what to tell them. He was a, he was a scientist and he wanted to give them data and information. But there really wasn't much information out there. You know, what kinds of sexual behaviors are safe? What kinds are dangerous? What, you know, um, what kinds of sexual behaviors are acceptable? What are unacceptable? And so um, without that information, he didn't know what to tell his students. So he decides that he's going to undertake a research study and he gets funding to uh, study the human, uh, human sexual behavior. And he starts out with men. And his first study is published in the 1940s. Um, and it was published under the title um, Sec uh, I can't remember. I lost it now. Sexual Behavior in Human Males, I think was the title. And um, what he finds out is there's a huge variety of sexual behaviors. People aren't just engaging in, you know, heterosexual intercourse in the missionary position, right? Face to face intercourse. People are engaging in all kinds of sexual behaviors, but none of that was known or could be verified until he came along and did his um, exhaustive national survey. And it's quite a good, the methodology of it was quite good. There were some criticisms of it, but, um, but it did highlight the fact that um, there is a, this huge variety of sexual behavior. And um, morally and socially, there was a belief that we engaged in much more limited kinds of behavior than we did. Um, first of all, uh, one of the things that we know is that men and women both respond to visual and auditory stimuli. Men tend to be more responsive to visual stimuli, not too much of a surprise. Women tend to be uh, more responsive to auditory stimuli. But to a greater or lesser degree, both men and women uh, will respond to both of these stimuli stimuli, and of course, touch um, as a stimulus for sexual behavior. Now, these stimuli have to be either desirable or aversive. If I'm exposed to an aversive sexual image or sexual stimulus, um, I'm probably not, it's not going to arouse desire, right? And the idea here is that these stimuli have to arouse some sort of desire in order to initiate the human sexual response cycle. 
aversive, um, undesirable, or um, like sour milk would be aversive in an extreme. Yeah. Um, some interesting data from this, um, the, the psychological effects of stimuli on sexual desire comes from uh, Doug Kenrick, who was at um, the Arizona State, I think, in Phoenix. And uh, Kenrick looks at um, what happens when he was college males in his study. Um, I think they were exclusively heterosexual males. And he exposed them to images of women who were considered highly sexually attractive. Um, and he would have a second, a control group, that was exposed to images of women who were considered average in average attractiveness. Um, incidentally, attractiveness we generally measure in um, symmetry. Um, we almost universally will find a symmetrical face much more attractive than an asymmetrical face. So having both sides of your face being the same. Um, but anyway, that's a topic for a different lecture. Um, so he, he exposes uh, men to these sexually attractive women and then has them rate the average women's pictures and rate the attractiveness of their female partners. And what he finds is that if uh, these men are exposed to these sexually attractive images, they will rate their partners and the average women's attractiveness lower than those who are exposed to images of sexually uh, average um, females. Yeah. But isn't that kind of more of a, um, a quality that we have as human beings? I, for instance, would be Good, good. So isn't that sort of a general um, cognitive quality that we have that when we're um, exposed to something that is more desirable that we tend to dismiss things that are less desirable? Possibly. I don't know. Um, one of the phenomenon that we do know about, for example, is the anchoring heuristic where um, you will tend to evaluate evidence or information based on information that you're given, right? So we did this in uh, 201A in uh, class. We did that experiment with the Mississippi River. Remember that? And so um, one half of the class is given a sheet of paper that says, uh, is the Mississippi River longer or shorter than 500 miles and what's the length? And I give the other half of the class a piece of paper that says, is the Mississippi River longer or shorter than 3,000 miles, and what's the length? And the ones with the 500-mile question guess a shorter length of the river than the ones in the 3,000-mile condition. And that's called the anchoring heuristic, and we use that mile figure, 500 or 3,000, as a basis for um, making our estimations. So it could be something similar to that, um, for example, that you're dealing with there. Yeah, question? Yes, yeah. So your, your question was, um, was the study just college males? The answer was yes. And couldn't it be related to maturity and um, experience? Yes. 
Um, but what the bigger question for you is, um, can we generalize those results from college males, to, excuse me, to non-college males? And the answer is not necessarily. Um, so we'd have to run studies outside of that population. Yeah. So we can only really generalize to this particular population of college-age males. Yeah. Um, fantasies. Um, men and women both engage in sexual fantasy behavior. Um, that is that we oftentimes, uh, either while we're engaging in sex play with another uh, individual or if we're engaging in masturbation, we will uh, engage in fantasy. That is, we will imagine situations or people that are different than or non-existent of the person that we're with. And uh, what we tend to find in terms of sex differences is women's sexual fantasies tend to be longer. They have, um, they have a longer duration. They have more involved characters. So um, the characters are more important. They, the situations tend to be more elaborate. And um, as I said, they take um, longer to resolve. Men's sexual fantasies tend to take a shorter amount of time to resolve, um, probably relating to men's um, and women differences in men's and women's orgasm uh, speeds. And the, but they also tend to involve fewer characters and less elaborate situations. Um, if you're interested in this fascinating um, collection. Nancy Friday is a uh, sociologist, and she collected women's sexual fantasies. And she has two volumes of this. One is called, I think, um, My Secret Garden, and the second is called Women on Top. And uh, the first collection was done in the 1970s, second collection in the 1980s. And what she finds is that the um, women's sexual fantasies changed over the period of about a decade or maybe a little bit more. And where in the 1970s, the fantasies tended to be um, more have more traditional female roles, have more traditional male dominant roles. In the 1980s, these fantasies started to change. Um, she started to see that um, often, you know, oftentimes the females were adopting the dominant roles in the fantasies rather than the males. Um, and so she relates it to social change and how uh, the sexual fantasy behavior actually reflects changes in society in terms of women's place in society. It's fascinating stuff. Well, the you know, of course, the topic is interesting, but as academics, you know, <laughs> I'm lucky enough to be teaching human sexuality this term, so I have to do a lot of <clears throat> empirical research on the Internet. <laughs> That's a good question. Do women tend to fantasize about their actual partner, whereas men tend to fantasize about fantasy partners? I don't think so. I think, in general, um, uh, the fantasies tend not to be about the partner that someone is with if they're with a partner. But I can't be sure about that. Yeah. But again, we wouldn't know any of this, really, unless Kinsey had stuck his neck out and gotten funding for his uh, sex studies. Yeah, question. And and <laughs> and whether sex became a, you know could become a um, 
a reasonable uh, uh, field of study. So, yeah. So, yeah, there have been some follow-up studies. Uh, the Masters and Johnson study is um, uh, is one of the famous ones. Um, there's another study that I can't think of right now that collected quite a lot of data. The, uh, oh, now I'm going to try to remember. Um, the, 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 the Kinsey report. Masters and Johnson, and there was a there was another one that came out in the 1980s, and I can't remember what it was. But anyway, okay, um, let's talk a little bit about sexual orientation. Um, first of all, we differentiate between sexual orientation, sexual identity, and gender roles. Um, what is a gender role? Okay, so the roles and expectations of your social group that's based on your gender. So you expect me, based on my at least my physical form as a male, to engage in certain kinds of behaviors, um, to, in, to dress in certain ways, right? Um, if I came in here in a nice um, peach-colored summer dress um, with a ribbon tied in the back, you would find that um, quite odd and definitely not in line with my your gender expectations of me, right? However, it would, however, be amusing. Yes. Um, so, uh, I mean, now I got the fantasy thing going. Stop it! Stop it! Stop! Stop! Uh, okay. So, gender roles, and uh, but it extends beyond just appearance. It extends to how we hold ourselves in relationship to other people, how we approach people. Do we approach people with deference? Do we approach people um, uh, as dominant figures? And so the deal is that um, we do that mostly based on what the person looks like. Do they look like a male? Okay, I'm going to expect them to behave in certain ways and I'm going to deal with them in certain ways. The problem is that if your body is male, but your psychological identity is that of a female. People are going to walk up to you and treat you as if you're a male. And it's hard for us to imagine this because all, almost well, virtually all of us, probably all of us in this room, have gone through life um, having an alignment between our psychological uh, gender identity and our physical form. But when those two are mismatched, it's extraordinarily disturbing to someone to be treated as if you're a man, for example, when you feel like you're a woman and you want to be treated like a woman and you treat other people as if you're a woman and they get upset because their expectation is you'll treat them as if you're a male. So this stuff is so woven into our social and cultural systems that it becomes invisible. And um, these roles 
are extraordinarily powerful in our everyday interaction. Um, you know, I have a particular role in this classroom, right, as an instructor. And so we have a dynamic together that's based on me being the instructor, you being the student. When I step out of that role, or you step out of that role, then it becomes disruptive in the social system, right? And so there's a lot of pressure from the social system to keep you in the gender role that your physical form represents, right? So, um, so the, you have to you have to kind of appreciate how powerful this stuff is. So, uh, sexual identity or gender identity is a problem when we have that mismatch, and so that's where we have people who uh, will go through uh, uh, sex change operations um, to get their physical form to match their psychological identity. It's a lot easier to do that than to change the psychological identity because that's extraordinarily um, embedded. So those two things are entirely different than sexual orientation. When we talk about sexual orientation, we talk about the gender to which you find yourself um, uh, attracted to and you find yourself um, desiring romantically or sexually. Oh, let me make sure that this isn't an emergency. Hello? Hi, is this an emergency? Okay, can you call me back? I guess so. The call was last. Okay, so um, uh, I also want to um, differentiate between these different kinds of love um, because these are three sort of forms of love that we generally talk about. Passionate love, that is love where you are, um, that's the kind of love where you feel incredibly strongly attracted to someone. Um, it, lust is incorporated into passionate love, for example. Sorry about that. Let me make sure that this isn't an emergency. Hello? Hi, is this, I'm in class, is this an emergency? Hello? I'm not getting anything. I'm just going to have to turn it off. Okay, hopefully that's going to be okay. So um, the other aspect we have is romantic attraction. So this is the kind of um, love where I feel incredibly drawn to someone, but it doesn't have that same lustful, passionate component. And the third companionate love is um, love that tends to emerge um, as a relationship becomes more uh, stable and has gone over a longer period of time. And that's when people's love for each other exists mostly as a function of them being life companions and helping each other navigate the difficulty of um, everyday life, right, over a long period of time. Um, these kinds of love exist independently of sexual orientation. So whether you're um, heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, or somewhere in between, um, you generally tend to experience these same kinds of affections and feelings for, um, uh, for your romantic and sexual partners. The other thing that the Kinsey Report does that's important is it illustrated that sexuality runs on a continuum. It's not bipolar. We are not exclusively heterosexual or exclusively homosexual. 
In fact, a fair number of us will exist somewhere in between exclusively heterosexual and exclusively homosexual. That is that we will have had um, same-sex sexual experiences or that we may prefer same-sex sexual experiences or if we're homosexual that we may have um, occasional heterosexual sex experiences. So um, th this is not as sort of simple as it once appeared to be. Um, it's much more fluid. Uh, women tend to have a more fluid um, experience with their sexuality than men do. That is that they tend to be um, more willing to accept attraction uh, to same-sex uh, individuals. We're going to have to take a break. It's about 5 after 4. Can you come back here at 4.15? And we are going to quickly wrap up motivation and then um, emotion So uh, I'm going to breeze through a couple of slides here because we've got to move into emotion. But um, um, this is uh, mostly data from uh, Kinsey's uh, studies. Uh, the 1953 study was um, on women's sexual behavior. The, the 1948 study was on men's sexual behavior. He had a lot more difficulty getting funding for the uh, study on women's sexual behavior. Um, partly because of the controversy that his first study raised, um, but also uh, just because of social norms. Um, what he found was that um, four, about 4% 4 of men were exclusively homosexual for their entire lives, and about half that number of women uh, were exclusively homosexual. He uh, found that 13% of men were predominantly homosexual, but had some heterosexual experience. And again, about half that number of women. So it seems to be, the rates tend to be higher among men than women, about twice the prevalence among men than women. Later studies um, seem to concur roughly with Kinsey's studies. Um, some are higher, some are lower, but on average they tend to be um, pretty similar uh, in terms of uh, sexual uh, orientation. Yeah, um, I see there, there are conflicting, conflicting studies and conflicting data, partly possibly due to the particular um, bias of the researcher going into the studies, so it's tough to know. Um, his, his methods were pretty good, though. But yeah, the book does um, seem to uh, say that his rates were high. Where did he get all these um, It was, uh, I don't know how he actually recruited them. As I assume that he put up flyers and things like that asking for subjects, but I can't remember entirely. They did. There was a direct interview, and um, anytime you're collecting interview data, there's uh, all kinds of problems that can 
crop up. But he was pretty careful in his methodology. So um, his data is, is pretty sound. Um, what causes sexual orientation, which leads um, to the question usually of what causes homosexuality, but a better question is probably what causes heterosexuality. Um, is it, for example, biology? Is there something biological there? Um, or is it maybe um, social influence that causes you to be heterosexual? Um, do you tend to be heterosexual because the majority of people are heterosexual? Do you tend to be heterosexual because you are born heterosexual? Um, we do see some biological correlates with sexual orientation. For example, um, genetic studies show um, that monozygotic twins will tend to have higher rates of a sibling that is gay versus dizygotic twins. So uh, there's some indication that DNA is fairly strong in terms of determining um, sexual orientation. There are also uh, differences in brain structure, particularly the size of the hypothalamus. The size of the hypothalamus in gay men, for example, is more closely correlated with the size of hypothalamus in heterosexual women. Um, and there's uh, some growing evidence that hormonal exposure uh, may result in changes in, um, or may result in the, in the emergence of uh, sexual orientation. Um, the, um, the main research right now is looking at prenatal exposure, so in utero. And one of the things that they're looking at is um, certain pesticides in foods can mimic hormones. And so they may um, be forming, they may alter, for example, the formation of the hypothalamus um, at different rates. You got a question from Lisa? Or heterosexual. Exactly. Why is it terrible? Okay. Okay. So your point is that scientific research can be used for means which are maybe not socially justifiable or acceptable. Yes, that's true. And it has been. The question then arises, should you do the research at all? Um, and that's a bigger question than um, Psych 101. Um, you know, that gets into philosophy of science um, and the politic politicization of scientific research. Um, so, for example, um, you know, Hitler was doing a lot of scientific research in the concentration camps. Um, was that at all justified? Probably not. Um, would the results have benefited humanity? Probably not. Maybe they would have. Um, there are all kinds of um, arguments for and against doing any kind of um, psychological or 
physiological research. So yeah, that's a bigger question, and it is a, it is a question worth posing. I don't want to discourage you from posing it, but um, you know, you can always look back and say, should we have done research that led to the atomic bomb? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Uh, David, did you have a question? Oh, 52% of the monozygotic twins were um, had a gay sibling, hetero, homosexual sibling. Uh, yeah, and among dizygotic twins, the percentage was much lower that they were uh, of the same orientation. Yeah. So there's a strong, so there's a strong that gives strong evidence for the effect of genetics is essentially what that's saying. Yeah. Um, as adults, there's very little evidence that hormonal exposure will have an effect on uh, sexual orientation. So um, it's um, all the research right now is focused on prenatal exposures. Um, are there any correlates in social socialization which may affect um, rates of homosexuality, for example? There's very little evidence of that, and in fact, um, there are cultures where homosexual behavior is socially prescribed um, uh, for a particular period of time, oftentimes in childhood or early adolescence. And in those cultures, the rates of heterosexual uh, or hom the rates of heterosexual versus homosexual orientation um, really don't seem to be affected by that. So the experience of being a a homosexual sex partner doesn't seem to have an effect on um, your primary uh, sexual orientation. So that gives relatively um, uh, good support to the idea that there's um, that social and uh, uh, experiential factors probably aren't an issue. There are definitely cultural uh, issues in sexuality and how we engage in sexual behavior. Um, reflected by the problems that Kinsey had with getting his uh, study funded and published. Um, but what we see is that there's a wide variation um, both in culture and in time. So certain kinds of sexual behaviors were more acceptable in our histor historic past, whereas uh, now they may or may not be as acceptable um, in certain cultures behaviors may or may not be acceptable in other cultures they are. Um, and at some point in development, um, about two-thirds of the cultures um, uh, planet-wide will have a period where homosexual behaviors are acceptable. Um, typically, for example, in North American culture, that period will come very young. So children, four, five, six, Oftentimes, they'll have this sex play experience with same-sex um, uh, children, and that's considered relatively um, acceptable. It's considered relatively harmless. In fact, it, it is. There's no, um, it's not going to have an effect on their uh, sexual orientation one way or the other. Similarly, children age four, three, four, five will have um, opposite sex uh, sex play too. So. Uh, they're mimicking the larger uh, society around them. 
Okay, um, let's move into now uh, talking about e-motion. Um, whoops, I don't want to go there. I want to go here. So um, these are the things we'll basically cover here. I'm going to skip over that side. If I were to ask you, what are your most basic emotions, what would you say? Happy, sad, angry, fear, hunger. That's a more of a motivated behavior. It's not an emotional state. You might be cranky emotionally if you're hungry. Yeah, if it's real, if the food's real good, you can have an emotional experience or um, a sexual orgasmic experience, perhaps. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, good fried chicken. Um, when we look, um, what, when we look at um, basic emotions and the varieties of emotions, um, there have been a number of attempts to sort of classify what our common emotions are. And one of the things that um, psychologists have tried to do is to look across cultures. Which emotional experiences occur universally across cultures? Um, and one of the best uh, studies on this comes from Izzard in uh, 1977. And he identifies 10 very basic emotions that seem to be, um, that seem to exist regardless of culture. And uh, he identifies joy, in something called interest excitement, uh, surprise, sadness, anger, <coughs> Um, none of you uh, identified disgust or contempt, but that's uh, an emotion that occurs universally. Uh, you said fear. And none of you identified this other set of emotions, shame and guilt. Um, these are another set of emotions, again, that, that appear universally across cultures. Now, within cultures, these, these emotions are going to be expressed in different ways and perhaps in different amounts. But these um, seem to be 10 of the most sort of basic human emotional experiences. What we also see with culture is that certain emotions are more appropriate. Other emotions are less appropriate. Same thing with gender. Certain emotions are more appropriate. Certain emotions are less appropriate. And those are going to depend on social and cultural norms, right? The norms of the society, the norms of the culture. So how do I know how you're feeling? Expressions. What kinds of expressions? Facial expressions. What else? Body language. Good. Tone of voice. What you say. Sure. All of those are indicators of what your emotional experience is. And um, what we find is that in addition to verbal expression, Oftentimes, nonverbal emotional expressions are um, among the most powerful. And in fact, easiest to detect. But we'll talk about some gender differences that exist in emotional uh, detection. So let me see uh, how you do with this stuff. What emotion is that? person experiencing? Happiness? Okay. 
Why is that happiness? Okay, so the smile is a good indicator of happiness. What else? The eyes. What about the eyes? Okay, a psychologist would want something a little more specific than a look. Yeah. So the teeth has uh, the smile has teeth showing, but what about the eyes? What's going on with the eyes? So what's that? They're narrowed a little bit. Okay. Anything else? Cheek being lifted up, of course, is a function of the smiling. Yeah. Well, let's have a look at this one then. What expression is that? Angry, maybe pouting, perhaps. Yeah. Um, how do you know it's pout? Uh, how do you know it's angry or pouting? Okay, so the eyebrows. Uh, particularly, what about the eyebrows? They're scowled. We usually call this furrowed because it creates furrows, uh, vertical furrows here. Um, and what else? The mouth is pursed, closed. The chin is wrinkled. Okay. What else? How about the eyes? They're cold. Oh, interesting. Can you be more specific? The eyes are squinted. But we said that squinted eyes was an indication of happiness. The different squint? Okay. So they're not like moon shaped, but that may be part of her physiology. All right. All right. Okay. So uh, a ex particular emotional expression is really a function of a constellation of factors, right? It's not any one factor. You have to sort of look at the entire, the entire face. And in fact, that's what people do if you, you can measure their what's called saccadic eye movement when they're looking at faces. And what they do is they'll start out, for example, looking at one eye, then they'll go down to the mouth, then they'll go up and look at the other eye. They might look at an eyebrow, they'll look at the nose, they'll look up here, they'll look across the forehead. And this all happens in the course of about a second. And that's how they figure out the emotion that's going on in a face. How about that one? Sad? Why? Could also be pouting. What's going on with this face? Eyebrows, they're not furrowed in the, uh, they're opposite of the furrowed direction, right? Where we see these, which are, are sort of pointed inward, these have more pointed up in the, and pointed outward. What else? The lips, so the, the shape of the mouth, yeah. How about this one? Disgust. Something smells, yeah. Why? What's going on? What's different here? Okay, so the nose. The nose is really scrunched up here. The nostrils are flared, probably to expel whatever it is that's disgustingly foul. Yes. Uh, the eyes again are um, narrowed. Um, it's got the same. It's really got the same eyes and eyebrows as angry, doesn't it? But this gives you that indication that it's not angry, it's disgust. Right. 
Surprise, good. Uh, because the eyes are wide open, good. They're taking in as much as possible. What else? The brows are arched, lifted. What else? The mouth is open. So it's almost like they're trying to acquire as much information as possible, right? How about this one? Scared, frightened. Um, so the mouth is open, but not at the same amount, right? Um, the eyes are wide open, just like they are with surprise. But there's something else. So the brow, yeah, the furrow, again, indicating anxiety or um, anxiousness, right? So these are all indicators that we use to try to figure out what's going on with other people's emotional expression. And we're pretty good at it. Um, we do see, for example, that there are some personality differences in detecting emotional expression, particularly introverts, people who are more introverted, uh, tend to be better at detecting these nonverbal expressions of emotion. What does introversion mean? Sort of, yeah, sort of, but. Okay. Someone who's quieter, more internal, more withdrawn in social situations. An extrovert is someone who's more outgoing in social situations, likes to mingle with different kinds of people in social situations. Yeah. Um, there are some gender differences in nonverbal emotional detection. I'll talk about those more in a second. Um, but experience also has an effect. For example, children who are survivors of childhood, or adults who are survivors, I'm sorry, children who have undergone abuse um, tend to be better at detecting nonverbal expressions of threat particularly, but not necessarily other kinds of nonverbal emotional expression. So it's very domain specific for this experience component. Um, and it's probably because it's a survival thing. You know, you know what it looks like when something bad's going to happen. That look comes over the face of the abuser and that's a cue that something bad's going on. Right? But they may not be as good at detecting other more, maybe more positive or pro-social uh, emotions. So let's break down the gender thing a little bit. Um, women uh, tend to be better at a few things. First of all, detecting emotion generally tend to be better at detecting emotional expression and they tend to be better at detecting power relationships. So the hierarchy of dominance and submission in social um, orders in their, in their environment. They also tend to be better at expressing emotion non-verbally and they also have a bit of an edge over men on empathy. What is empathy? Not exactly an ability to feel for the op for, for another person. What's that? It's kind of like sympathy, but it's different than sympathy. Sympathy is more about feeling what the other person's feeling. Yeah, it's very much understanding another person's emotional experience without having necessarily experienced that same thing yourself, right? Um, 
So they tend to be uh, better than men at that. Um, it's unclear um, whether these differences are more innate, that is inborn or genetic, and to what degree these differences are socially and culturally based. But women certainly are given um, different kinds of um, permission to experience different kinds of emotion than men, for example. So women's acceptable emotions in this culture, this society, are what? What's the most acceptable emotion for women to express? Sadness, crying, depression. How about men? Anger, rage, good. And those are the those are the acceptable ones. If a woman expresses anger and rage, she's a what? She's a bitch, right? If a man expresses um, hap if a man expresses sadness and depression, he's a wimp or a pussy, right? So these are ways that the society transmits to us that these are acceptable gender appropriate emotions, right? And, um, you know, of course, it's really up to you to um, decide if you want to challenge those cultural um, norms. It's a lot harder, for example, when you're an adolescent and you have all that social uh, peer pressure. But as you become older, it's a lot easier to express your emotions in the way that's um, suitable for you. Uh, forget about this reserve reading. That's for another class. So what about culture? As I said, culture has an effect on what kinds of emotions we express or how strongly we express them. And this research comes primarily from uh, Hazel Marcus, who is a cultural psychology researcher. I think she's at Stanford. And uh, Shinobu Kiriyama, who's a cultural psych researcher in Japan. This is from a paper they published in 1991. And they were looking at how um, emotional expression exists primarily in the workplace in these two different cultures, North American culture versus uh, Japanese culture. North American culture is an example of an individualistic culture. This is a culture which values the um, prominence of the individual over the collective or over the group. So the individual's experience, the individual self, is of more interest um, than is the collective self. And what we see is that emotions in individualistic cultures tend to involve more individual goals and attitudes rather than collective or group goals or attitudes. They tend to be more prolonged, so they last longer. If you're angry, your anger goes for a longer period. And they tend to be more focused on the self. If you're angry, it's because of something that was done to you, right? So these ego or self-focused emotions are, for example, things like anger, pride, and frustration are the ones that uh, Marcus and Kiriyama identify. And they say that these emotions, when they're expressed, are considered more appropriate in individualist cultures than they are in collectivist cultures. And the prime example for collectivist culture is Japanese culture. This is a culture that values a harmony. It values the experience of the individual as part of a collective social group rather than the individual as an individual. Um, 
And so what they found is that the expressions in collectivist cultures tend to be more pro-communal. They tend to be emotions which are better for these collective groups rather than focused on the individual. Um, and they tend to be um, briefer. They don't last as long. When they do, when emotions are expressed, they're expressed for a shorter period of time, presumably so they don't, if they're negative emotions especially, they don't negatively affect the group. And uh, they tend to be less self-focused and more other-focused. So examples of other-focused emotions are um, sympathy, shame, and something that doesn't translate into English very well, um, but the best translation is interpersonal communion, that experience of feeling... Um, communed or blended or um, enmeshed or entwined with someone else, right? So uh, if I'm working on a work team in the United States and somebody on the team screws up, I'll probably get mad at them. I'll get angry at them. Um, if I'm working on a work team in Japan, for example, and someone screws up, I'm probably more likely, instead of being angry because they screwed up and it ruined me, more sympathetic because um, that helps the team, that helps the team to recover. I'm, I'm sympathetic because your failure is causing all of us, um, uh, is causing all of us a problem, right? My successes in individualist cultures may be more um, expressed as pride, whereas um, in uh, collectivist cultures, they may be more expressed as um, this interpersonal communion, this sense that we all have benefited, we've all done well, right? So when you think about emotion, you can't just sort of think about it as a monolithic thing that's going to happen the same way everywhere. Culture is going to have a significant effect on it. Um, Questions, ideas? Let's do a little bit of anger. We won't have much time to get to uh, happiness today. What makes you angry? You want to brainstorm that? When you get mad, what causes it? Men. What else? Or we'll say relationships. When something goes wrong, when some system or event screws up, what else? When something doesn't go as I planned it, right? What else? What's that? Something that you fear? Unfair. Okay, so something um, unjust or unfair. Yeah, I've been treated unjustly or unfairly. Or maybe another person has been treated unfairly or unjustly. What else? What else makes you mad? Physical pain, Physical pain might make you angry. Okay. People that don't use their blinkers. People that don't use their blinkers. Damn right. What else? What else gets your goat? That's an old farm term, huh? These city folks don't understand what I'm talking about. They don't understand my rap, man. If, if you're um, hungry, you, you, you get 
Okay, so if you're hungry, you may get cranky or angry, yeah. Um, most of what you've identified kind of um, focuses on when someone else has wronged you, or in the case of, we talked about an injustice, maybe someone else has been wronged by someone else. And so this wrongdoing is a lot of what drives anger. In addition, situations can. So if something doesn't go as I planned it, um, I might become angry. We do also know, for example, that heat um, increases frustration and increases expressions of anger. So just putting someone in a hot room, you'll get higher levels of anger. And crowds, putting someone in a crowded room, you'll get back higher levels of anger if you measure their emotion than if they're in a less crowded room. So if you go to a concert and the it's crowded and the air conditioning fails, you're looking for trouble. Yeah. So good question. So uh, can we say that urban situations may lead to higher levels of anger and aggression? Yes. Um, better yet, an urban area in a hot part of the world. Yeah. Although those correlations are not direct. And there are cultural differences too. Yeah. So it's not that easy. Um, in fact, oh, we're out of time. Um, let me just tell you this one interesting study. Um, there was a researcher, um, I think this was uh, Nisbet, Dick Nisbet, and um, he was interested in aggression. And he was interested in what made people aggressive. And so what he would do is he had this hallway that wasn't really wide enough for two people to pass each other. And he would send a confederate of the experiment or someone who was working with him down this hallway. And the subject would be coming in the opposite direction. And the idea was to see how, how far from the confederate the subject would yield. Because they can't both, they'll crash into each other if they're both trying to go through the hallway, you know, shoulder to shoulder. Um, and what they found was that subjects from, these are college students in the Midwest, and if they had come from southern cultures, they were more, southern states, they were more likely to smash into the other, into the Confederate, and usually insult them or swear at them afterwards. <laughs> and they measured, and they showed higher testosterone levels, these are all men, they showed higher testosterone levels um, after they had gone through this incident. And so um, the question then was, well, what is it about southern states? And they thought, well, maybe it's heat. And so they ran a correlation on the heat in these different states these people were from, and they didn't find a relationship. So the correlation isn't direct. It's not that close. But what they did find, uh, and I'll just shorten this, is that um, these people had all come from um, herding cultures, so cultures that made their living with livestock. And the hypothesis is that um, you have to be very sensitive in those cultures to incursions on your territory because somebody might be coming to steal your cattle or your goats or whatever, and, or your sheep. And so, um, so what they did is they started running studies in other countries where herding is the predominant source of income, like Scotland and New Zealand, and they found the same results. So it's pretty likely that, that just where you come from and the kinds of the kinds of experiences that your ancestors have had in making a living actually affects how, how you respond to uh, interpersonal threat.
So uh, that's all we got time for today. And um, I'll see you. I won't see you for another until a week from Thursday. So um, hopefully your exam will go okay. Um, study well. Um, get the study guide on the web. If you can't do that, let me know and I'll print one off for you. Have a good weekend, I guess. Gee, I can't imagine. Oh, yeah, and if you haven't picked up a new calendar, print it off. You can pick one up here. So are you real close to your brother? Um, I, you know, I really was. And... Um,